I uh, hope you're well. Good to be inside, right, after kind of a dreary afternoon and uh, a little bit of a chilly day, but still January, at least for another two days. So uh, good to see you here this evening. We're continuing in our look at uh, some different religious groups. Tonight, Quakers and Moravians. So I'll ask again, anybody here have any Quaker heritage in your family or yes? Anybody else? Yeah, some? Okay. How about Moravians? Any Moravian heritage? Probably not as much here. Find a little more of in Forsyth County for sure. Um, we're going to look at these two groups. These are two groups that pretty much everyone's heard of, but nobody really knows exactly what they stand for um, and sort of where they fit in the history. They both have unusual starting points and somewhat similar ending points, but they are not related. They come out of very different parts of Christian history and um, even different time frames by a couple of hundred years or so. But, um, but the reason I put them together is because they're in our community, right? Guilford County has um, a lot of Quaker, uh, the triad areas in general. Now, these, many, these few hundred years later, uh, lots of triad Quaker meetings and, com and congregations. And uh, the Moravians are all in Forsyth County, primarily. That's where they settled. We'll get a little bit of that history and talk about some of that and maybe, maybe answer some questions there about that, too. So you'll, you'll know some of that. So I typically put these two together just for that. They, otherwise, they really have no connection uh, to each other. They don't have similar histories. And uh, they are, um, they um, just are here in our community. Brother Ray, come in, my friend. Good to see you. Um, Okay, so Quaker and Moravian. So what else now? You're a Methodist, right? So that's, that's where, where life takes you. There you go. There you go. Well, it is, uh, it is good to see everyone. Hope you've had a good week. And here we are at the end of January and uh, moving right along with, uh, with the events of the year and the calendar year. And, of course, uh, news this morning, the vote uh, for uh, Pastor Nick to join our pastoral staff will well, it uh, was certainly good news this afternoon. I was texting with him uh, today, as I'm sure several folks were. And uh, he'll be starting here March 1st. So uh, looking forward to that and, and getting him introduced to everyone here at the church as he steps in the role of associate pastor. Um, and uh, let's see, I was going to mention some things coming up in our schedule this week. Uh, Saturday morning, have a men's prayer breakfast here. And uh, that'll start, we'll start eating somewhere around 8.30, so you're welcome to come a little early. A lot, of, a lot of folks, a lot of the men like to come early and get some coffee and just enjoy some fellowship there. And then we'll officially open uh, the breakfast bar about 8.30 or so. And uh, so come join us for that, and feel free to invite friends. It's a very casual and, and uh, a very uh, enjoyable time together. We'll not stay terribly long. We'll be out of here by, you know, an hour, hour and a half at the very latest. We've all got things to do on Saturdays. And then I hope you plan to come back and be with us Saturday evening at 6.30. Uh, we're going to have a pick and sing. And uh, we're, we've got some, we're inviting all the musicians that we know or, or we think we know, anybody that wants to come and enjoy uh, just some picking. We're calling it traditional songs and traditional music. And uh, that'll be all done out in the lobby. We're going to kind of redo the lobby a little bit to set up for this. And so we think that'll be a lot of fun. And uh, looking forward to that. So come join. It's not a it's not a meal event. It's not a any. It's not a concert. As I said this morning, it's not a program. It's just some folks like to sit around and pick and sing. We'll go through some songs, and everybody's welcome to join in with us. So that'll be this coming 
Saturday evening. So we're looking forward to the end of the week already and everything's ahead. And then uh, hold on to your hats because Thursday is Groundhog's Day. So uh, make sure you've got that in your planning as the, the week goes on and, and look forward to seeing what the next six weeks of weather will, uh, will, uh, are predicted by uh, the Groundhog. Well, tonight we want to uh, take a look at these two groups. We've been working our way through several groups, and we've got a couple more Sundays, I think, before we will finish this. I'll mention our next groups um, as we, the next couple of weeks, like tonight, we'll do two. Uh, they, they fit well together, and so we'll talk about that as we finish uh, tonight. Uh, let's see, I don't think there's a whole lot. Check the weekly, and the, the weekly Connect and the, the February Connect came out this morning also, so check those things for all the events that are happening going into February, and there are several, and lots of things ahead for us, too, and, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be here, of course, Wednesday night looking at um, some other prayer requests, updating everybody on details there, and then um, Wednesday night we continue our question and answer series, uh, questions that the congregation has asked um, about the church, Bible, and faith, the Bible and faith, and uh, so uh, we'll have, uh, we'll answer some of those uh, Wednesday night as we continue that series. Well, let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll try to get a lot done here in a short amount of time. Father, thank you for our, our day, for this opportunity to come and together our hearts and our thoughts around um, these, these um, issues related to other Christian denominations, that we may understand them better, we may, may appreciate our own, um, our own standings, our own history and denominations uh, uh, as, uh, uh, as Baptist, as, uh, as Brother Ray, a Methodist, as, as we see the history of how you've moved in generations previous, I pray that you will work and move similarly today. And the gospel still needs to be boldly proclaimed. Uh, the truth of your word needs to be lifted up and held to a generation. And I pray that you'll remind us that we can be that influence, that generation. And I pray that you'll bless our time. Bless our church as we go through the evening. Bless all the events and the classes, uh, children's events special tonight. And I pray that you'll be honored through what's accomplished for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's talk about the Quakers first. Uh, now, if you know much about the Quakers, you know that Quaker is not an insulting name to them, but it's not their official name. Uh, they're actually called Friends. And um, uh, that we'll see how that sort of plays into it a little bit also here. The name you tie to the Quakers, though, is George Fox. There is one person you can say, here's the guy, here's the man, who, uh, whose intent in starting a... Um, a non, what, would, what history will call a non-conformist movement uh, resulted in the group today that we know as Quakers several hundred years later. George Fox lived during a time when England was going through its civil war. Did you realize England had a civil war? It lasted um, from uh, the 1640s to uh, 1651, 52. It ended with the, uh, quite a civil war. I mean, this, wasn't, this was really a religious civil war. What did England have to, have to fight over? What they'd been sort of pointing fingers and calling names at each other for, for generations. And that was their religious standing. I mentioned last week, so much of the history of Christianity in Europe is, are we going to be Catholic or are we going to be Protestant? And England was not exempt from that. And even though Hen King Henry had pulled England away from the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, they were still doing a lot of Catholic things in their services and in some of their doctrines and the teachings. 
And that was a continual battle. Well, it finally reached ahead in the mid-1600s uh, under Charles I, who was the, king of, uh, the uh, son of King James I. We think of King James Bible. Charles I really was more Catholic-leaning, much more so than his father was. And some of his political moves and some of his religious decisions as the head of the Church of England reflected that. And that certainly stirred up the country quite a bit. It finally came to a head in the um, early 1640s, and, and a civil war broke out. And as any civil war is, it puts people fighting against their own countrymen, right? Uh, this was Catholics fighting against Protestants, basically. Uh, the king's men were known as cavaliers. Uh, they were the, uh, the ones who, who stood by the king as his army, and uh, that was kind of their name. The, the, the parliamentarians were the Protestants, and th their nickname was the Roundheads, partly because of the way they cut their hair, but uh, the look that they gave. And um, the, the war ensued for nine years, a uh, civil war, and, and a very bloody civil war in many, in many ways too, for sure. It all ended when King Charles was finally arrested. He'd been arrested, I think, once and escaped. But he was finally arrested and charged with treason. And a lot of details to that, as you can imagine, a lot of legal rambling and, and who's got the final authority. But ultimately, he was beheaded, ending the, the reign of the monarch. And, this, and now England as a country is trying to figure out how do we rule ourselves. And, and again, that's a whole other story with a lot more details we've got time to go over. Except to say George Fox was living during that time frame. And you can see he would have been a man in, in his early 20s for sure when all this was happening. And found himself caught in the middle of this, again, civil war that wasn't just political, it was religious. And how did it influence him and his thinking? I don't have all of his quotes, but if you go read his material, he will say, I went to the, he says in, basically, I went, to the, I went to the priest, implying the Church of England, to find answers to my spiritual quest. They left me empty-handed. He then says, I went to the, to the separate preachers, is his word, meaning the separatists, those who weren't part of the Church of England. And they too had answers, but nothing satisfied my soul. And this is his, his quote. He said, I, I heard a voice after going through this. I heard a voice which said, there is one, even Christ Jesus, that can speak to thy condition. Uh, interesting revelation that he received, according to his own testimony. His inner voice, he would talk, he was, he would talk, it, uh, talk about it later, kind of developed the thought. But that's kind of where the, this mindset moved. And as a result, he began to gather individuals together who were looking for a spiritual reality but weren't satisfied with either the Church of England or the separatist preachers, congregations. So he got them together. And basically, the format became, well, if God spoke to me, maybe God will speak to you. 
maybe you want to stand and share with us what God has laid on your heart. You know, we today is, would typically call that a testimony. Not, what, not just what God has done, but what has God said to you. And you can imagine a generation who had never had such an opportunity. The only person who ever spoke in church was the priest or the pastor. The congregants just sat there and listened attentively, but had no action, no active duty. So in the, in the assemblies that George Fox gathered, you can imagine people for the only time, for the first time in their lives, had an opportunity to stand up and say, God has shown me. God has revealed to me, right? Those kind of things. And they did so with, with great fear and trembling, evidently. So much so that their attendees, actually some of them went into convulsions. I can imagine them being so nervous. Some of us know what that's like to stand in front of a group of people, that you've, to do something, to say something you've never done before. And, and, and they went, actually went into convulsions and, and movements and shaking and became known as those who quaked which is where the name Quaker comes from. It wasn't, it wasn't originally a name of endearment. It was what their critics tend to call. There's, you know, you went to one of them Quaker meetings where they, just, they stood around and tried to say what God said, but they're quaking and shivering as they do it. There's even, there even a case where a Quaker was taken to court, and the judge accused this individual of, of, of being one of those who quakes at religious meetings. So it became a, a name that stuck to them. It wasn't given to be anything necessarily complimentary, but they, they wore it with some identity for sure. And so there's where the name came, uh, comes from. It comes from results of this same time. Fox, therefore, came to believe, and as Quakerism would teach, that every person has God's gift of divine inner light or inner voice. So you sort of hear that background of his own experience being brought to the, to the congregation. Everyone, this is not something you, you receive because you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask forgiveness. The terminology we would use to be born again. It was just everyone has this voice. If, we only, if, if only we would listen to the voice, if only we would follow the light then we would be doing what God would want us to do and not what we would want to do. So that, that becomes a part of that. Again, one of his quotes, Christ is here among us and he will directly teach our hearts if we are receptive to it. Again, the initial wording of that doesn't scare us or run us away. But the way it was applied became very unique and very different. The, the, to the Quakers early in their history and still today, the Bible is valued, but it's only one source of finding out what God wants you to do, one source of revelation. Now, we would say it's the only source of revelation, God's revealed word. Again, I'm trying to get us to think like the way, uh, the way in which the Quakers are approaching this. To them, experience is more important than the Bible. The Bible may say this, but if God has, if I'm convinced God has spoken in my heart to tell me this, then what God has told me trumps what the Bible teaches or gives me more insight than what the Bible does. So it's an interesting perspective, and I hope you hear very quickly some of the differences that certainly would, would, would be appropriated if we think about 
where we stand in the evangelical positions we would take and the Baptist positions that we would take in our church. So it is a, a very different way in which we think about some of this. And there's my computer freezing up again. Just hang on a second. Maybe, that's, maybe it's not. Maybe it's okay. There we go. Um, and the ultimate reality became this. As the Holy Spirit worked or acted in the New Testament, so he will today. So that's, again, that's a different interpretation, different perspective of that. So George Fox is certainly the man to talk to about um, uh, uh, the history and the beginning of the Friends Movement. Uh, there is a George Fox Road here in Guilford County. It's over in Guilford College. Uh, we'll talk about them a little bit more later. So certainly if you ride by there and see that name, you'll have an identity to that. The other name that's tied to the Quakers here in America, of course, is William Penn. Uh, um, William Penn was a man who was raised in the home of an aristocrat in England. His father was an admiral. He ran in the circles of Hall of the Royalty of England. And it became quite a uh, social event that he announced one day that he was a Quaker because the Quakers were pretty much looked down upon and persecuted even. There were laws against Quakers, I'll mention those in a moment, that were established in England. Because the King of England, now it's Charles II, had designated property in the American colonies to his father, a place we now know as Pennsylvania, he came to America. And he came to America pretty much with the keys to the colony of Pennsylvania. Uh, the King Charles II named this colony in honor of his father, partly as a trade-off to some debt. Uh, William Penn's father, the admiral, had loaned the king um, several thousands of pounds in English money, and the easy way to pay it off was to give away all that land over there that nobody cares about because in the colony, so he gave it to William Penn. So he comes to America in the 1680s, so he is, he is a generation after Fox. Um, and, but now the Quaker movement in England had gained, some, had gained quite a foothold. Pennsylvania is chartered in 1681 by King Charles II. And so now it's an official colony. Penn comes over as a Quaker intending to establish a colony for his Quakers, for his Quaker uh, congregations who had been persecuted in England. But he also realized there were other groups that were persecuted. He was very willing to have other Christian denominations come who had been persecuted and to find a place where they could um, worship God as they deemed. Penn comes with great intent. The, the land had been deeded to him, but he did not take it by force. He actually went into the land and purchased the, uh, went into the colony and purchased the land from the Indians. And he said, you know, basically all the king did was give me permission to take this, but they are the rightful owners. And so you have to say, well, there's a, there's a man of some character. He didn't just go in and take it away. And began to promote Quaker settlements. He was the one also who designed Philadelphia. Um, you know, again, quite a history. And if you grew up in Pennsylvania, 
You'll hear all these details somewhere in a history class as a child, I'm sure, somewhere. And they really established Pennsylvania as a Quaker-minded government system. What are they assuming? They're assuming a lot of things that just are not going to live out very well. They're going to assume everybody's going to be nice to each other. We're all going to do what God wants us to do, right? I mean, that, that sounds good until you get out in the streets and try to live that way because people aren't that way. And by the way, the Indians weren't always so accommodating just to sell their land. When settlers got too far, they would, they would retaliate and attack. Some of the biggest political issues of, of Penn and those who followed him's political career was the fact that they had to figure out how do we defend ourselves against the attacking Indians when we've been told not to use weapons. And they, there were quite a few stories that came, came down the, the history pages of that type of an issue that the Quakers had to deal with. But so William Penn is, a, is an important name in American Quakerism for sure. The Quakers will come, will come here to the south as they begin to expand and move south from the colonies of Pennsylvania. Or from the colony of Pennsylvania, they start to move south. But the question that everyone has on their mind, I know, is what about the guy on the oatmeal box? Is it William Penn? It may well be, but it's not the intention to be William Penn. It just certainly looks like a Quaker, right? Now, Quaker Oats, as we think of them today, is a multinational corporation with all sorts of food products. Uh, the company itself originates out of uh, German, let's see, the German Mills and American Cereal Company from 1850. And there's a history of of that company and the mergers and the buyouts and everything. But early in, their, early in their product line, they developed this idea of selling oats. In the 1850s, that was a common thing to do as it is today. Probably most of us have an oatmeal box in our house somewhere, or at least a package of oatmeal. And they chose the symbol, is actually the, one of the first uh, patents of a, of a symbol of a Quaker. And, and, they, and they say in, in their company history, we chose the Quaker because it was of quality and trusted value. It was a name that people recognized even 150 years ago. So, um, so there is a link there ideologically, but not, not directly from that. Let's talk about the Friends Movement. We'll try to go through some things quickly here. Again, it grew out of the English Civil War of the mid-1600s through Penn. It would be called a nonconformist movement. And we'll see that term in some other groups as we talk about them, and including the Baptists when we get to them. Nonconformist means you did not conform to the Church of England. And those are groups, the reason they were persecuted is they were interpreted to be, well, if you don't support the Church of England, you must not support the country of England or the king of England, therefore you're a traitor. And so there was always this shadow hanging over the nonconformist. And there are several groups who had take this label nonconformist, Baptists being one of them. We'll talk about them later, also in the 1600s. But again, that's, that's probably the month of, of uh, that's le uh, later next month. Uh, their official name, the Religious Society of Friends. And, and they went from England. Again, there's their origin, their point of origin. They went to the Netherlands. Why the Netherlands? Because the Netherlands was also uh, Holland, right? Uh, we think of, and several other groups from England will go to the Netherlands to escape religious persecution from England, including some Baptists. Again, we'll get to that later. 
they would send um, some to Barbados, the Caribbean island, and to the American colonies, of course, especially following William Penn. Uh, it was a time in England when there was laws against being a Quaker or having Quaker meetings. Uh, you see there for, for the better part of almost 30 years, uh, it was illegal in England to be a Quaker as far as expression of those ideas or meeting together. Uh, the Puritans here in America, which we would call the Pilgrims, actually instituted laws against Quakers in their provinces, particularly the colony of Massachusetts. And their, their basic rule, you know, we talk about three strikes and you're out. They, the, the, the Puritans said, uh, if you're a Quaker, three strikes and you're dead. The third time you violate our laws, we're just going to execute you. And there are, uh, there were four cases, three men and one woman, the woman's name's Mary Dyer. She has quite a story. If you had the time to go read a little bit of, of her experiences. But she was executed. These four people were executed simply for being Quakers. And they were all executed in Massachusetts. So there was some pretty extreme views, obviously, about Quakers. Um, and their history, too. They teach that God is love. That's a primary way they ascribe God, the light of God is in every person. Here's the phrase or the motto that they cling to often. There is that of God in every person. There's a divine spark in everyone. It's just a matter of us making a conscious decision to following that voice, following that light, as it was called. A full relationship with God is achieved by letting the inner light guide. There's your full relationship. Again, they're not going to preach or teach what we are comfortable that the Bible does teach, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, they evidently just sort of shove off the words that Jesus says, you must be born again, right? Um, so a full relationship is just following the inner light within you. A direct and personal relationship with God does not involve a priest or a minister. And we'll see how that plays out here in just a second too. Redemption and the kingdom of heaven are to be experienced now. And uh, that's, you know, the glory of God expressed in you is going to be demonstrated in the life that you live and the life that you enjoy here. Whatever is beyond death, we'll worry about it at the end. There are no sacraments. I mentioned earlier, Quakers do not baptize, earlier in an uh, earlier lesson. Quakers do not baptize, and they do not, they do not involve a communion. To them, baptism is an inward uh, we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They would say that's the baptism. We're not worried about water and whether you dip or pour or sprinkle. Communion is a spiritual act. It's a renewal of your own spirit before God. We don't do it as a community or as a congregation. They reject oaths. They reject violence. They're pacifists. They reject war. Uh, again, that's a, that's a trend we've seen. We saw it with the Amish, the Mennonites, uh, the Hutterites, um, that sort of arises through several groups. One of the more interesting realities of that was during World War I, as World War I was getting started, there was a group called the American, and this group is still in existence today, the American Friends Service Committee that, that proposed themselves a wartime service of love. So what did they do? They, they created in themselves, and, and they, be, they had begun in England, and it kind of spread from there. They, they created for themselves an opportunity to serve those who had been impacted by the war. Quakers aren't going to pick up a gun and shoot anyone, but they're going to go help those who have been shot. They're going to go help the needy. I mean, right? And so that's, that's kind of where that mindset for them, they found themselves being best involved. The term friends, as they will call each other friend, 
Uh, we, we talked about some groups who called themselves brothers and sisters. Uh, but the Quakers tend to call each other friend. It originates from John 15, 14. Um, and the, they were persecuted by the Church of England, again, and in, in England, and the Congregationalists are pilgrims or Puritans. Uh, it depends what time you're talking about is what you call them, here in, Amer here in the colonies particularly. So one reason Quakers were excited about a, a whole colony that was going to be theirs, especially one as large as Pennsylvania, was they weren't under the shadow of the Congregationalists or the Puritans of Massachusetts. And so, um, uh, so, the, so again, a little bit of that history plays into how we think about it. There is no clergy, um, there's no pastor or deacon or elder presbyter of a church. Um, they have no creed or is what we would call a doctrinal statement. Again, some other groups have done similar things. So here's the values that they uplift. Peace, freedom of conscience, equity, and equality. And so all through history, Quakers have been involved in things like this uh, social activism, uh, the abolition movement, the, the uh, anti-slavery movement, uh, prison reform, the, the women's suffrage movement of the early 1900s, the temperance movement. Uh, they've been involved in education. Uh, I'll mention a little bit of that before we finish again. Uh, gender equality movements. Today, in today's world, you will find Quakers in, uh, pretty heavily involved in the Black Lives Matter movement and in the transgender movements um, in support of those things. So again, they, they, they really just believe God, whatever happens between you and God is you and God. There's no doctrine, there's no standard, there's just whoever you are and whatever you do. Some of those are, are obviously important issues in many settings in, our, in American history and beyond. Um, let me see, let me mention, I was going to mention uh, uh, the Underground Railroad. Most of us are probably familiar here with the Underground Railroad of the Civil War era during the slave period. Uh, Guilford College, where, where the, the, the New Garden Friends meeting, uh, that was a stop in the Underground Railroad. And, uh, and they still can take you to places on the campus there at Guilford College in the woods and uh, identify places where uh, the Underground Railroad uh, was going through that campus or through that property. Uh, when Quakers come together, they don't have church like we think, whatever your ide identity of a church worship service is. They call it expectant waiting or waiting worship. That's one option. That's the more traditional option. And in that option, people gather just to sit. And when somebody feels like the Lord has moved them to say something, they will say it. And after a period of time in that, in that environment, begun with quietness, then uh, they've had their, their waiting worship. Because over, the, over time, the Quakers have obviously been influenced by some other denominations, and particularly people from other denominations who came into the Quakers, they started doing, there are some Quaker churches that will do more program services that maybe you and I might feel somewhat comfortable in as far as the structure. They would have prayer, they would have readings, including some from the Bible. Uh, they might sing hymns, and there might even be actually someone who's there preaching a sermon on that particular Sunday. But whoever that someone is, they're probably not going to be called a pastor or a clergyman. And so, um, 
uh, it's a different worship experience. Now, that's one reason why when you look at some of the history of Quakers, this was kind of the idea. And, and by the way, women certainly were given the platform as men to stand in a meeting and say um, as they needed to. So this was more of, an, more of the look of the original Quakers in that uh, assembly time. But if you walk into a Quaker assembly today, this is one of the Quaker churches in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, you will notice something. There is no platform. There is no central speaker lectern, right, or pulpit. All the chairs are there, and they all f somehow they face different directions. So everyone comes in with the idea, again, of this waiting worship mentality. We're all coming in. We'll find a seat. And uh, eventually somebody will stand and say something, and then somebody else will stand and say something else. Um, and today, very similar. Again, a smaller congregation might just do what this one, this assembly is doing, is sit in, sit in their, circle, their uh, chairs in a circle and, um, and have their waiting worship time in that type of environment. Now, here in the triad, again, there are lots of Quaker, and, uh, Quaker congregations or assemblies or friends meetings. Uh, Guilford College is certainly the New Garden uh, area there. Friendship uh, out near the, uh, that region out near the airport um, is certainly part of that. Uh, First Friends, which is a large facility on, uh, as you go in, uh, head down uh, Friendly Avenue, First Friends meeting uh, just, beyond the, just beyond the hospital. Um, Deep River, down in High Point, Deep River Friends. Concord Friends, which is southern, um, southern Guilford County. Winston-Salem Friends Meeting, Snow Camp over in Alamance. Uh, these are just some examples, even down to Chapel Hill. So the central part of North Carolina certainly has a, a pretty good representation of Friends Meetings. Uh, without a doubt, though, one of, the, one of the places that's most distinguished in that list is uh, New Garden Friends Meeting and uh, Guilford College. Uh, the New Garden Friends Meeting, worship was begun there in 1751. Um, and so you get a sense of just the age of how long they've been in the community. Uh, Guilford College, established in 1837, was one of the first institutions in the South particularly, but in America generally, to accept men and women um, as a college. And um, um, still, obviously, in operation today. So that's Quakers, right? And... Obviously, I hope you hear a lot of differences in the way they, they would pursue and believe and, and, and interpret and understand and apply the truth of the Scripture. Have you seen this? Have you seen this, something similar to this before? The lamb intending to be Christ, the representation of Christ, obviously. Um, and notice the motto of course our lamb has conquered over the top arched over the top and on the bottom let us follow him um, several denominations i wouldn't say the baptist have very much but several denominations kind of picked up this symbolism and even the, the motto but it grows out of the, the moravians the moravian church it was the first to sort of tag that the saying and the imagery uh in in their understanding of that now, again, we talked about the Quakers, their origin is strictly in England. And everything from there, they're, they're an outgrowth of the Church of England, or a nonconformist group out of the Church of England. When you talk about the Moravians, you step back in time about two and a half centuries, and you step to an entirely different part of Europe. We have to step over in the area of uh, Bohemia and Moravia, which is um, west, south, I'm sorry, east, southeast of Germany. 
Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic region would be part of that too in today's maps. Anyway, and we reintroduce a man that I introduced when we first started this series back before Christmas, and, that, and that's John Huss, as we would say it in English, Jan Hus. Um, and he was a Catholic um, clergyman, theologian from, from what we'd say today, the Czech Republic, Prague. Um, and you can see his time frame there. He lives in the latter 1300s, early 1400s. He was, he was in the Catholic Church as a priest. And in that, in that position, had realized, as many had during that time frame, the downfallings of the, of the church. Theologically and morally, lots of, lots of problems with the, the Roman Catholic Church. And he happened to pick up on the teachings of John Wycliffe, which were coming out of England a generation earlier. And... Huss becomes a voice that, that mimics that of John Wycliffe, who proclaimed the people need a Bible in their own language. Let's start there. Who proclaimed the people need to come to a service where the gospel is preached in their own language. I mean, we are so accustomed to that today, but that was, that was radical thinking in the 1400s. And John Huss was that voice. And he finally after the influence of Wycliffe and the things he began to write and teach on and, and his position as a priest and professor at the University of Prague, uh, used that platform to continue to proclaiming the need for a reformed Catholic church, his criticisms were eventually called on to by the church, obviously. And he got called to the Council of Constance, which was being held in Germany, to come and answer for his, his criticisms criticizing the, the church and the Pope and the, the, the whole system. He was given a promise that his life would be safe if he came to testify, although his friends had hesitant uh, leanings. Uh, he came and, and showed up there at the Council of Constance, and they heard his accusations, and they answered him by declaring him a heretic of the church. And having declared him a heretic of the church meant that all the promises they made to him were null and void. And he was arrested and finally taken and burned at the stake. And uh, again, John Huss is not a man that you hear much of in this part of the country but, or this part of the world. But you get in the eastern half of Europe and his name is still reverenced today and revered. His followers after his death kind of had to go underground, you can imagine. I mean, persecution is definitely an issue there. And the group that went underground be, became a, a group of what we would call today Protestants. And if you think about the time frame, he is 60 years ahead of Martin Luther. So the, the group of Christians that grew out of John Huss's teachings about the Bible and about the work of the um, uh, the, the preacher and preaching in their own language and reading the Bible and, and all the corruptions of the Roman Catholic Church, the group that kind of went underground and grew out of that became known as the Unity of the Brethren. And this group would begin a few decades after John Huss's death. They finally became organized enough to do this. But again, they're operating in a, in a place where persecution and, and uh, the work, but they continued the thought of what Huss had preached 
and it would be another century plus, but they would eventually publish a Bible in the Czech language for their own people. Uh, this would be about the time when many of the Bibles in England were being published in the English language. Um, this, would, this would follow the Bishop's Bible, which was predated by the Great Bible in England. So at that same time frame, the 1500s. This is also the group, we would say, was the, the first, certainly, to actually print hymnals. They did something extremely radical. They let the congregation sing. Right now, we all sang this morning. We do it every Sunday. We don't think you've had church unless you've come and sang, right? But in the, in the 1500s, this was a radical idea. And the Moravians have held on to a thought of being very musically inclined. Music is, is really ingrained in their spiritual DNA. We'll see how that plays out a little bit, too. Because when you talk about the Moravians, you're always talking about some influence of music in their, in their worship, in their congregational assemblies. So they were the first to do that. What they became more recognized for was, again, the idea of how you live your Christian life, not so much as what doctrine you believe. And so for, the, for this unity of the brethren, their intent was to find themselves living in a Christian community with one another, doing much what the Quakers had, would eventually try to do, right? Let's just live out our Christian lives and, and live in community together and 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 find the true meaning of our Christian faith and how we live our lives. But staying underground only lasted for so long, especially as they organized some, they were still persecuted by the Catholic Church and almost exterminated for sure by the time they get in, into the next uh, several decades. And what happened was that they started to assemble themselves and their, their plight was later found out by a, a German aristocrat uh, named uh, Nicholas of, uh, of Zinzendorf. Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. And Zinzendorf, too, had been raised in an aristocrat family of Georgia. He was known by the royalty not only of Germany, but other countries also. He had been raised with the finest of education. As a young man, though, he really felt a call to God's service. But as an aristocrat, there's, you just don't throw away everything and go join the monastery, right? So he, he, he found himself in this unique position of having wealth and availability of resources, but also having a heart for, for God and for the Bible. And Zinzendorf, who is next door in Germany, we mentioned Moravian and Bohemia, he gets word of what's happening to these Christians over here who are just trying to live out their faith. He has a real heart for them. And he allows them to come to his properties and begin to build a community. And so sure enough, some families were agreeable to that and starting life over. And you can imagine you got to go in and kind of start life from scratch. Uh, build your house, clear the land. It's a lot of hard work to do that. And um, these people found themselves building a community together. 
it worked well until some other groups started moving in. And they didn't have quite the conviction of some of the other, some of these other unity brethren did. So there was conflict and dissent between them. And they uh, settled this at a church service. Interesting enough, they called the community together, had a church service, and the testimony of that service was the Spirit of the Lord moved upon everyone. And before this, after the service was over, people just didn't leave and go home. They stayed and communed for a while. And word came to, to the count of what had happened in the, in, the, in the settlement. And he was pleased. He said, send them food. If they're still there at church, they need to, they need to fellowship together. The, the more they're together, the better, right? So he sends them some simple food supplies. And they shared this, this meal together. It became a bit of a tradition. We'll see it show up here in just a moment. It became a tradition of the unity of the brethren assembly to have this community meal together to show their support and encouragement and love for one another in Christ, right? All sounding good for sure. The, the, this group would send missionaries in all directions, uh, including America, where they, they found a, a home there in Pennsylvania. Again, not surprised because the Quakers were a religious, free community. And so they started there. The town of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania has its heritage in the Moravians, as we would know them. Again, that name comes from the fact that they primarily came from Moravia. It's not a religious title. It's more of a geographical title tied to a religious group. Here in North Carolina, they came down. Um, uh, past uh, Bishop uh, Spandlenburg... Uh, came and surveyed a track of 100,000 acres in North Carolina. And they established in that property Bethania, Bethabra, and Friedland, Hope, and Friedberg, and eventually Salem was the intent, right? And so today we, we know that community. It's old Salem. Um, that was established by the Moravians in the 1700s and the other communities that supported it. Salem became kind of the central hub and all the other communities around it, which are still around today, you can go in Forsyth County and find Bethabra Park and Bethania and all those things, those areas, even down into, into uh, Davie County. And uh, those communities have a Moravian heritage to them. The Moravians came down, and when they, they first came, they said, you know, what would you do to start a new community? They sent a bunch of young men and some, some men to supervise them, and they, they cleared land. They started building simple buildings. Eventually, after several months passed, others came and joined them, and it was a thriving, growing community. And Salem uh, became quite a, uh, quite a community for its time during the colonial period, for sure. Um, and the word Salem, of course, comes from the Hebrew word shalom, that means peace. And so, um, and here in North Carolina, one of the places you'll find the Moravians. I mentioned last week, as we talked about, um, uh, about the history of the Methodists, the Moravians had quite an influence on the Wesleys as they came to Georgia. Remember the story of John Wesley coming to Georgia, John and Charles Wesley coming to Georgia, and they found themselves on a ship with a bunch of Moravians who were going to Georgia under uh, General Logerthorpe uh, to help set up a Moravian colony there, a Moravian settlement there, or Moravian influence at least anyway. 
again, the once established, they uh, built schools. Uh, in Europe, the Moravians had distinguished themselves as having some of the best education system of the day. Um, and they included girls. So if you know much about Salem College, it's an all-girl college. I assume it still is. I don't know if it's... I assume it still is. I know it was for many years. Salem College is all girls. What's, what's the high school? Salem Academy. Salem Academy is an all-girls school. So they were leading the charge on education, again, for, for girls and women, young women. Uh, they included in their work and in their ministry outreach to Native Americans and African Americans um, as they settled here. Um, their, their mindset was from the words of Christ in John 17 that they all may be one uh, was the idea that they thought we can, again, bind together in community, in unity of community, in order to see ourselves live out our Christian faith. They are hesitant to adopt creeds, or as we would say, doctrinal statements. What they do instead is they, if you go into their reading, they will, they will say, look at all these creeds. We, we see good things in them, but you will not find a strictly, uniquely Moravian creed or doctrinal statement. They just look back at church history and say, we see good statements in all these. Their motto, again, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. Uh, you'll even hear Moravians say, that's a wonderful statement, but what does it really mean? Uh, it seems kind of a broad statement for sure. What's essential? What's non-essential? Where, where do you have those dividing lines at? And, and again, creates lots of issues there. Here's at least the essentials they will proclaim most. Um, God creates, and his creation is good. It is God who redeems and blesses. We respond by faith in what God is doing. And has done, it was going to say. So therefore, love God, love others, love your neighbors, and love your enemies. Looking to the future with hope, we will see God. Again, statements that drive the thought into good things, no doubt about it. But what's lacking in, in, in uh, much of what they say is any reference with depth to the scriptures. Again, it's one of the things we would see as a, as a challenge they would say baptism and communion, they will practice it, but they again will carry over some of the thoughts of a sacrament, that it invokes some type of God's grace because you do this thing. We, of course, would not say that. They are ordinances, but not sacraments. Baptism, by any method, they'll take sprinkling, pouring, or immersion. Uh, they will practice infant baptism. Confirmation occurs when a person... Um, uh, uh, particularly children, reach a stage of understanding uh, of the scriptures and of the expectations of living out a Christian life. They generally do not teach being born again. Uh, again, they're going to talk about the experience of living life in a way that fulfills the Great Commission. They are in communion, even by their own statements, they're in full communion with, you, with uh, these other denominations, United Methodists, Evangelical Lutherans, and Episcopals, so Church of England Episcopals. Um, the full communion meaning they would, they would associate themselves. They were one of the founding denominations of the World Council of Churches. And so they have a very ecumenical or broad-reaching religious spectrum idea. Um, again, a member of the World Council of Churches and a founding member at that. 
They do accept women pastors. They do accept uh, same-sex marriages. Um, they, the, the tradition that began outside that settlement church day back uh, under Count Zinzendorf would become their tradition of a love feast. Now, love, anybody here been to a love feast? Right. It's one of the things that you'll see them promote. There is no particular time for a love feast. I've been to one. There's no particular time for it. You'll see them do it at Christmas and at Easter and, and a few other things along the year. A love feast is a service. It's a worship service in tend. Everybody comes in and sits down, very similar to what we'd, what we'd expect. Um, the, the pastor, he or she, will read something from Scripture, appropriate for the setting, and they will serve buns, like brown and serve rolls, for lack of a better term. They will serve buns and coffee, usually. Coffee, tea, water, whatever it is uh, that they will do. And they will, and they will pass it around, trays, baskets of bread, trays of coffee. You will be served. And while someone may be singing or music is playing or the Oregon music is part of their world, uh, very much while they're playing, you, you just simply consume the, the bread and the, and the drink. But it's not a communion service. And it has no overtones to a communion service. It just is a matter of your eating together to show our fellowship one with another in a tradition that began um, back in the 1700s. It's called the Love Feast. And it does, they would say, celebrates the headship of Christ and the fellowship of believers. Uh, we acknowledge we are Christians and we fellowship together for that purpose. The Moravians in, in Winston-Salem, uh, there, are, there are 20 different there are 20 different Moravian churches in Winston-Salem. and or, I'm sorry, in Forsyth County. And uh, so it's still a, a pretty broad spread all throughout the county. Um, their, uh, their work uh, there is emphasized or highlighted. Probably one of the most things they're most known for in Forsyth County is uh, the uh, Sunday morning sunrise service that they have. Um, and again, music is a part of that. Um, they have musicians who will go from church to church and gather other musicians as they work their way to God's Acre, which is the cemetery of the Moravians in Forsyth County. And once there, they, they will play music as part of the resurrection service, and they have a, a whole liturgy of things that they will do at the resurrection service. And it is, it is, it is the largest attended resurrection sunrise service uh, in the state and probably in several states. And they invite all Christians to come. It's one of those things in life I hope to do one of these days. Uh, haven't done, haven't got there yet, but uh, just to participate and see that happen. But they do it at God's Acre, which is their, uh, which is the uh, the original graveyard for the uh, for the community of Salem. Now, again, most of us will know Salem today as Winston Salem, and uh, Winston, the city, the the community or the township of Winston which is named after Major Joseph Winston, a Civil War um, officer, uh, began north of Salem as, a, as a, more of an industrial uh, center. And, of course, Reynolds Tobacco um, grew up so much of that. Eventually, the two communities grew into each other. They bordered up against each other. And so the state of North Carolina authorized the, uh, the two townships to bond together in Winston-Salem. 
into Winston-Salem as we know it today. So the boundaries are, aren't quite as distinct, but obviously if you've been to Old Salem, a lot of people here have been to Old Salem. If you haven't, go. It's certainly an enjoyable trip and uh, interesting to see the, the representation of the, uh, the time period in which they lived. And, uh, and uh, they have some very seasonal things. And of course, as a congregation or a community built on Christian values, you will see a lot of overtones there of, of our Christian faith. But, uh, you know, the Moravians, again, interesting group. Both groups, I think, have, have strayed in lots of ways because they just don't have a Bible foundation. And you and I, I trust, would, would see that, recognize it, and hear it, even in, in a short presentation like this, that they just don't have the Bible foundation that we think is so essential and crucial to our faith. And our convictions are built on, thus saith the Lord, not here's what I feel like today. And that's a very distinct way to, to approach our faith in the way in which we do that. So again, just looking at this to say, here's how some other folks have, in their history, interpreted the Scripture and things that go with it. So especially for a couple of groups that we run across with some regularity around here um, as Quakers and Moravians, and I don't see them going anywhere anytime soon. So they'll probably be around for a while. They've been here for, for quite a while already. Well, next week, we're going to tackle two groups again, the Adventist, including the Seventh-day Adventist, but there's some other groups too. We'll talk about a little bit of their history. And the Congregationalist. The Congregationalists are the pilgrims who came from England and settled in the Northeast. Uh, that's not a group you're going to see here where we are. You, I, don't, I don't know that you'd drive anywhere in, in Greensboro, and probably very few in North Carolina, if any, and find a Congregationalist church. Uh, there may be some, but I just haven't come across them yet. Uh, but we'll talk about those two groups. Again, they really have nothing to do with each other, but they're, they're, they work together in a, in a nice presentation like this. So we'll talk about those two groups next week. And to remind you, too, um, the Appel family, we're supporting them and praying for them. We'll pray for them as we close the boxes out there. And thank you for your continued giving to that. I know it's a blessing to them, and we hope to uh, continue doing that as they're serving on the field in uh, South, um, South Pacific, South Asia. Well, as we close the day, we're going to be praying for uh, the week ahead and all the events of things that are happening uh, here at church and, and uh, be praying for the transition as Brother Nick uh, comes into this equation very soon as he starts in March. Uh, March 1st, uh, at least Mar March 4th at the latest, but I think somewhere around March 1st, and, um, and be praying for that transition as uh, we sort of see some new things happening here, and it's exciting for sure. And I know we've all got prayer requests in our hearts, for sure. We'll be praying for those, and uh, keep up with our Wednesday night prayer list. We'll be back looking at things there. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for our time today, for an opportunity to be here this morning and to hear your word proclaimed and uh, to hear the truth that uh, you have provided for us, that we may know it, because our faith, um, as our conviction is, our faith is built upon the truth of the Bible. Uh, we have no other source and no other place to go. And uh, thank you for the reality of knowing and being affirmed to that as we hear our, our preacher and our preaching here at our church. Uh, I do pray that you'll uh, bless the, uh, the week ahead as we look into it for our congregation and events here, uh, for our church as we continue to move forward to the um, to the call of serving you and being a voice of the gospel in this community. I pray that you'll bless those on our prayer list. We have many needs there, and we just lift them up with confidence to see you do great things and a great work in those lives. And I pray that you'll bless our continued study as we are continuing to learn um, about the, the um, existence and the history of these other Christian denominations, that we may be better e equipped and prepared to understand uh, how we may uh, stand bold upon our conviction of the Bible and what it teaches as we engage uh, individuals from these, uh, de from these groups. pray that you'll be honored through what we do as we dismiss this evening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you.